Many of you know this, but many others of you, I suppose, probably don't. Before, uh, before joining the staff here at Foothill Bible Church, I worked for a number of years in commercial banking, ending uh, my banking career with uh, Bank of America. I figure if Matthew could be a tax collector and be used of the Lord, then a banker could be used as well. But uh, when I worked for um, Bank of America, I had the responsibility of conducting many, many annual performance appraisals uh, on those uh, folks that I had uh, management responsibility over. And the way that I uh, would conduct their annual performance appraisals was to uh, prepare them on my own and then also to have a blank copy prepared for them which I would give them ahead of time before we met, and I would ask them to fill it out and appraise themselves and write in their own uh, scores, how they thought they did against the various job responsibilities uh, that were part of their job description. And then when we met together, we would compare how we evaluated, and of course any differences would be the basis from which we would have our discussions. And... um, I found that over the years to be quite effective. People actually are are quite good at, most people are quite good at evaluating their own performance. There are those that um, have an overinflated opinion of their abilities, but they're actually few and far between. Most people were harder on themselves than I was, which I thought was an interesting uh, phenomena over the years. So the idea of of self-appraisal, I think, is a good one. In fact, it's a biblical idea. It's a biblical idea. Let me ask you a question this morning as we begin together. If Christ were to return today and, and uh, conduct a performance appraisal of your life and ministry, how would he rate you? How would he rate you? Which area, areas, sorry, uh, yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts, and um, those R's, they, uh, they attach themselves. What areas would he uh, think you're doing quite well in? Where would he be pleased in your life and ministry? And which areas would he say that you need improvement? Where would he say he's pleased? Where would he say this is an area that you need improvement in? I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. And in fact, it's my hope that as we go through this summer study together and the way this thing is unfolding, who knows? We may have the longest summer on record. <laughs> but in any case, as we're going through this study together, I think one of the, one of the benefits of this study is that it, it makes the return of Christ that much more real to us, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but as I've been preparing for this thing, I'm getting fired up. I am really coming to see and to love all over again the return of Christ. And it brings focus. It brings focus to my life. It's causing me to evaluate what I'm doing and why I'm doing it in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I mean, I want to be found by him and have him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Enter into your master's rest. How many want to hear that? Yeah, that's right. It's what we want to hear. 
It's what we want to hear. And, and so as we study together these seven prophetic events that are awaiting fulfillment, I don't think it can help but to cause us to examine our lives and but by the grace of God to make improvements in our life and ministry where they need to be made. There is that purifying effect as we think on these things. This is not in the notes. uh, That's okay. Acts chapter 3. With great apologies to my brother Tom in the translation booth. Acts chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1090. I did at least look that much up. Acts 3, beginning of verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us! And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk! And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking praising God. Of course, this leads to a tremendous opportunity for the proclamation of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But I was thinking this morning about this statement in the King James, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. I think it was yesterday afternoon, I was flipping through TV channels, arrived at a, at a news channel, and they were interviewing this woman who was talking about how much money she had lost in the Bernie Madoff pyramid scheme. This particular woman had invested everything she owned and had lost it all, $2 million gone. And she is only one of many, many. It was, I believe, a $50 billion Ponzi scheme, the largest ripoff in American history. And I was thinking about that. I was watching her. She was weeping. I mean, this was all this woman had. It is gone. It is gone. And I've been thinking about the financial crisis that is rolling through this country. And I'm no prophet nor a son of a prophet, not even a finger. So I don't pretend to try to forecast for you where this thing's going. But I'll tell you this. 
All the years I spent in banking tell me that it could get a whole lot worse than it presently is. It could get a whole lot worse. And I was thinking about all of that, and I've been thinking about the church, and I've been, and I've been thinking about where the church puts its, its trust, its hope, and its priorities. Said uh, more than one time, certainly among this, the uh, college and career class, that uh, when you swim in the ocean long enough, you're bound to drink seawater. We have been swimming, and uh, here it's not the ocean, it's more like a cesspool. Swimming in this for a long time, and all of us have drunk some seawater. That is, our culture has infected us to one degree or another. To one degree or another, we have been guilty of placing our future hopes in that which is transitory. 401ks, real estate investments, jobs, health insurance, and on and on and on we go. These are the things that keep us up at night often, worrying about losing them. And then I think about Peter and John. Silver and But what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand and walk. Also think about uh, Acts chapter 2. Just let your eye go up the page. Beginning in verse 43. This is Luke's summary of the result of the great preaching at Pentecost when 3,000 souls come to faith in Christ overnight, or not overnight, but instantly. And he says, verse 42, they're continuing to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then beginning in verse, verse 43, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... Breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What is going on? Was this a spontaneous outbreak of communism? Some people to believe such things. Not at all. Not at all. Let me tell you what is going on here. What is going on here is that these first converts, these early disciples, are expecting the return of Christ. They are looking for His return. And their their fervent look for the return of Christ is showing itself in their behaviors. 
They are selling their possessions and sharing them. Why? Because they know when Christ returns and establishes His great millennial kingdom that all the land, all the houses will be redivided back to the appropriate tribes and families anyway. It's It's an easy thing to do. It's not hard to sell it if you know that you're going to lose it anyway when he returns and then it's going to be redistributed as it properly should be. They are continuing with one mind in the temple. Why? Because he is going to return there. That's where he's coming. His feet will descend on the Mount of Olives, the prophet Zechariah says. They are looking for the return of Christ. And that looking is motivating them to do things that the rest of their neighbors think these people are nuts. But at the same time they think they're nuts, there's a certain appeal and attraction kind of... Fire me up here, will you? There's a certain appeal and attraction to that kind of gospel proclamation. Something that so captures your soul that it transforms your life. Praise him down to verse 47, having faith with all the people. And the Lord was added to the number day by day those who were in the Seventieth week, commonly called the tribulation. I've been working at it for a couple of weeks now. We said to you that there are ten reasons why we believe and teach this doctrine. We have been working our way through those reasons. It is difficult, I admit. To do this, there is a certain assumption of a working familiarity with the scriptures necessary to do this. I know that that's not true of every one of you. As I said to you before, I say to you again, please hang in there. I will do my best to define terms as I go. If there's a question that comes to your mind about something I've said, or there's a term that I haven't defined for you, please send me an email. If you send me an email, I will write back to you. That together we might understand this. I know that the vast majority of you believe this. I know that because it's part of our doctrinal statement. And you are members of the church, which means that you have affirmed our doctrinal statement. But I also know, as I talk to you, that while you believe it, there's a certain squishiness with regard to it. Like if someone really challenged you, you're not quite sure that you know why you believe it, but you do believe it. Well, believing is the first good step, and we're working on the whys. Working on the whys. I've given you five of those reasons, and I summarized them for you and put a handout in your bulletin. 
Okay, that's for you. Take it home. I'm not going back over that again. Okay, I'll never get out of the starting blocks. Because the problem is every time I review it, I add to it. That's where I go wrong. So you can go online. You can, you can uh, listen to it by podcasts. You can get a CD. You can listen to these. I've given it to you in summary form. Get your Bible. Go through it. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. So we are to the sixth reason this morning. The sixth reason. Why we believe in and teach a pre-tribulational rapture. That is, a coming of Christ for his church pre-before the tribulation. Before Daniel's 70th week. Before the time when God unleashes on this planet the accumulated wrath that has been building for the ages. A wrath designed primarily, as we said last time, to humble the nation of Israel and to bring her to a place where she is ready to receive her Messiah. It is second, It has a secondary purpose. Its secondary purpose is to shatter the kingdom of Satan, which is now in rule on this earth by the sovereign permission of God. It will shatter his kingdom, and it will establish the kingdom of Messiah. So that is its twofold purpose. Okay, sixth reason. Are you ready? The sixth reason we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is because it allows for children during the millennium. Now, you're going to have to think with me on this. By the way, people say, which of the arguments you think is most powerful? And uh, my answer is that all ten together are powerful. But if I have to pick certain ones, certainly the doctrine of imminency is a very powerful argument. But I find this argument right here to be very persuasive. Okay, so if I'm pushed to, to pick my best ones out of ten, okay, this is one of them. I think this argument is exceedingly uh, persuasive once understood. So are you ready? Let's give it a whirl. Now think with me. First Thessalonians chapter four. Let's just review some stuff. First Thessalonians four, page eleven eighty three. First Thessalonians four is one of those preeminent passages that speak about the rapture of the church. The snatching away of the church. Verse 16, 1 Thess 4, page 1183. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. At the rapture of the church, at the time Christ comes to take his church to himself, he receives all those who are, notice the end of verse 16, in Christ, both dead and living. For the Apostle Paul, that terminology of being in Christ is theological shorthand for Christians. Christians are in Christ. That is, they are by faith united with Jesus Christ. They are his body. And so both the dead and the living will be raptured and meet the Lord in the air. And it says they shall always be with the Lord. 
We combine with that Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. I'm not going to even turn you there, but he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. We shall all be changed. The rapture of the church, both the dead and the living, are changed. They, are, they receive a body suitable to be in the presence of God. We call it a glorified body. That is, it is a body absent sin. It is a body like unto the body Christ has and displayed at his various post-resurrection appearances. It's a mystery body to be sure, but we're told by Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is the first fruit, that is, he is the first to be raised with in that resurrection and with that kind of body. So he is our model. So at the rapture of the church, both the dead and the living in Christ receive a glorified body, a body suitable for heaven. You cannot go into heaven in the body you've got. Okay? Paul makes that exceedingly clear in 1 Corinthians 15. And in fact, he says that this is that the perishable, verse 53, must put on the imperishable, the mortal must put on immortality. You can't go into the presence of God in your present mortal body. It is defiled. It cannot exist in his presence. He would destroy it. So you must have a new body and God will provide you one. Now, that body suitable to live forever in the presence of God, Paul says, thus we shall how often be with the Lord? always be with the Lord. That body that is suitable to be in his presence always is a body that Matthew 22 verse 30, recording the words of Jesus, tells us is a body that does not procreate. That is, it does not have children. When the Christ returns for his church, the church is, is, um, uh, is given their glorified body. The, the, uh, the mystery, the change has happened you lose the ability to have children. No more children. Just hang on to that fact. Okay? Hold on to that. Now, all right, let's try it this way. Now, oh man, there's so much. Okay, at the second coming of Christ, not the return for the rapture of his church, but when Christ returns at his second coming, when he descends to the earth, puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us the Mount is split and moves apart north and south. He comes to destroy his enemies and to establish his kingdom here on earth. At that second coming, there are two judgments. He brings judgment to the earth. The first judgment to look at is back in Matthew chapter 25. So page 988, go back to Matthew 25. It is the judgment commonly known as the sheep and goat judgment. Sheep and goat judgment. Many of you have probably heard that terminology. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. This is his judgment upon unbelieving Gentiles. Because remember, from last week, when Christ returns to rapture his church, he takes all the believers out of this world. All that is left at that point in time is unbelievers. That's all that's left. 
during the course of Daniel's 70th week, during the tribulation time, many will come to believe upon Christ and will be saved, and the majority of them will be martyred for their faith. When Christ comes at the end of the seven years, it will be to judge the nations. The scripture talks about the nations. He is talking about the non-Jewish nations, the Gentiles. And so here in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, Christ speaks to us about this coming judgment. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So you know that this is an earth-based judgment. And all the nations will be gathered before him. When it says nations, he's speaking about the Gentiles. And he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. When he is speaking here about these brothers of mine, I am fully persuaded to the depth of my being, I'll demonstrate to you later, that he is speaking about the Jewish people. He is speaking about the Jewish people here. And what he is saying is that as you cared for the Jewish people who were under severe persecution during this tribulation time by the Antichrist, who was out to exterminate the nation, as you sheltered them, as you fed them, as you gave them something to drink, as you visited and ministered to them when in prison, you were in effect demonstrating your faith in their Messiah, and thus you did it unto me. If you're looking for a contemporary type illustration, you can think of those faithful Gentiles in Europe during World War II who put themselves at tremendous personal risk in order to shelter the Jews who were being butchered under the Nazi regime. That would be an illustration. I believe the same kind of thing is going on here. That is, one demonstrates one's faith through one's actions. That's what James says, right? You tell me you got faith, big deal. Show it to me. All right? And the way they show their faith here is by the ministry to these my brethren. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you thirsty, or hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, he has gathered the nations before him. He has separated them into two groups. He has separated them into a group who are believing And they have demonstrated that they are believing by their actions. They enter into his kingdom. He has taken all the rest of them who are unbelieving and he has funneled them off into eternal punishment. At that point in time, there are only righteous, that is, saved people, Gentile people. And they are in physical bodies like unto yours and mine. And they enter into his kingdom. Hold on to that fact. Hold on to that fact. By the way, I'm not going to turn there for time, but you can mark this down. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 speak of the judgment there in the valley of Jehoshaphat, east of Jerusalem. That is where I am persuaded that this judgment will occur. That valley, by the way, will be enormous because of the splitting of the Mount of Olives and opens up a massive valley that is not presently there. That's where the king will gather the nations and judge them. Now, what about Israel? What about Israel? At the return of Messiah, at his second coming to establish his throne, there are living Jews. Living Jews. Only about one-third of the population survived through the tribulation time. You can turn back for this to Zechariah. Zechariah is in your Old Testament, just before Malachi. Page 949, if you're using a pew Bible, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9 I praise God for the prophet Zechariah, by the way. He gives us a lot of important information with regard to these end-time events. Zechariah chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, 8 and 9, page 949. The prophet says, And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. When Christ returns, he will gather the nation of Israel together. He will gather them together. And he will take them out into the wilderness For judgment, you have to turn backwards to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 20, page 845. Now, there is some difference of opinion on Bible commentators with regard to this passage. And I acknowledge that. Some see this passage as speaking about the tribulation time. I don't agree. I don't agree. I think this passage is 
is locked into the time after the return of Christ, and I can talk about that as we go through. But this is a really interesting passage. Beginning in verse 33 of Ezekiel chapter 20, page 845. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. And I shall bring you out from the peoples, that is the Gentiles, and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face. It seems to me when he talks about into the wilderness of the peoples here that he is making reference, well, in fact, he says it, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. He's referring back to the time that that, uh, God entered into judgment in the wilderness of the Sinaitic Peninsula. I believe because he locates it historically with with that judgment in a real physical place, he's talking about a real physical place here at the end. That is, he is going to gather his people together here in the wilderness, and he's going to enter into judgment with Israel. That is, he is going to prepare her to enter into his kingdom. Verse 38, or uh, 37, excuse me. And, the, and I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant. What covenant? The new covenant. All right, they're already under the bond of the old covenant. This is into the new covenant. And I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter into the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go, serve everyone as idols, but later you will surely listen to me, and my holy name will, you will profane no longer with your gifts and with your idols. And he goes on. I believe what the prophet is telling us is that when Christ returns, he will will gather the remnant of Israel that has survived, physically survived the tribulation. He will take them out into the wilderness, and like a shepherd separates, he will let them pass under his rod. Those that are believing will enter in. Those that are not will be destroyed. Those that look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him, as the prophet Zechariah says, will pass under the shepherd's rod and will enter into his kingdom. The rest will be destroyed. Thus, entering into this millennial kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom, this, the, the kingdom foretold from long ago by the prophets, will be two groups of people, believing Gentiles and believing Jews, both which will be in physical bodies like unto yours and mine. They will be saved by faith, right? Saved by grace through faith, just like you and I. And by the way, and this is what prompted this whole study, right? Where the Apostle Paul says, and thus all Israel will be what? Saved. That's the answer to that question. That's the answer to that question. 
All Israel will be saved. That is, all Israel that survives the tribulation and passes under the shepherd's rod, proving themselves to be believing they are saved and enter into Messiah's kingdom. Let me add something else here. The prophet Isaiah turned backwards to the left. We're going to get through one reason. No, we've got to get through two. Wow. Isaiah chapter 65, page 748. Now let me just say one thing. We're looking at verse 17 of Isaiah 65 through verse 25. Prophecy telescopes... I don't know if I've mentioned this before or not. It's very, very common for one or more events on the prophetic horizon. When they're looked at in a, in a straight line, they look like they're on top of each other. They look like they can be right either the same event or right next to each other when there can be an incredibly long period of time that separates those events. You understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like driving up Mountain Avenue and, or, or Euclid Avenue, rather, and you can't see Mount Baldy even though it's the highest peak. It's because the other peak in front of it sort of obliterates it when there's a massive valley between. All right, the same kind of idea. I, I'll illustrate this for you. Uh, sorry, Tom, unscripted. I'll, uh, I'll illustrate this for you in uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, which would be maybe page 945-ish. Somewhere around there. 45, 46. Zechariah chapter 9. And verses 9 and 10. Okay, very quickly. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Two verses right next to each other. And in the white space between verses 9 and 10, you can plop the church. The last 2,000 years fit right into the white space in your Bible between verses 9 and 10 because certainly verse 9 was fulfilled, was it not? It absolutely was at the triumphal entry. Verse 10 awaits its fulfillment. It is his establishment of his kingdom. He speaks peace to the nations. His dominion, that is his rule, his reign, is from sea to sea, from the river. Whenever you see in the Bible the river, it's talking about the Euphrates River, from the river to the ends of the earth. So right there in the prophet's vision are the two comings of Christ, if I can say it that way, compressed side by side, and and the the massive amount of human years between them has been squeezed out. Now, back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17, page 748. The Lord says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Okay, so he's compressing events here. He's compressing, and he's going to speak about some other things in a minute. He's going to compress the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and new earth, which occur one after the other. He's going to just compress them on top of each other. And I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not plant and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or, build ch- or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. He's speaking here about the millennium, the establishment of the thousand-year kingdom. And what he is saying is during that thousand-year kingdom, there's going to be a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity upon the earth. People are going to begin to live again in incredibly long periods of time as the effects of of disease and so forth are reversed. The people are going to to, to, um, build their own houses, as it were, and, and plant and work and have children. And these are all the things, by the way, that mortal people do, yes? So we're talking about mortals living in this coming kingdom. Who are these mortals? These are the ones who passed under the shepherd's rod. These are the ones who are the sheep and the sheep and goat judgment who went into his kingdom. They've entered into his kingdom. And they have children. And that's the point I'm looking for here. They have children. The church, I told you earlier, was raptured. It was, they received their glorified bodies. They no longer have children. They no longer have children. But the believers that that survive through the tribulation enter into the kingdom, they do bear children during that great thousand-year kingdom. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Man. Crazy. Revelation 20. Page 10, or 1240. Page 1240. Revelation chapter 20. Beginning of verse 7. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, page 1240. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He has been imprisoned at the beginning of this thousand years. He will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, we'll talk about them another time, to gather them together for the war, and, num- and the number of them will be like the sand of the seashore. And they will come up on the broad plain of the earth surrounded and uh, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and the judgments begin, the judgment of the wicked dead. Now, let's see if I can tie a bow around all this for you. The return of Christ for the rapture of his church the church is given their glorified bodies. They go to be with him. Thus you shall always be with me, he says. Christ comes back at the end of Daniel's 70th week, at the end of the seven-year tribulation. He destroys his enemies, and he sets up a series of judgments, one for the Gentiles, one for the Jews. He judges both of them by their faith, or on the basis of their faith, which was displayed through their actions. Those that were believing enter into his kingdom in physical bodies and have children and live long lives. The rest of them are funneled right off and into eternal punishment. As the thousand years progress, okay, children are born who do not embrace the king, do not believe in Messiah. And eventually enough of them are born so that there is, a, there is a contingent when Satan is released that he can entice into rebellion against the king. And that's what he does, this final rebellion at the end of the thousand years. You got all that. All right, why is this evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture? Here it is. Now, now listen carefully. If... Christ's return for his church, for, his belief, for the believers, occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Then when he returns, all the believers that are alive at that point in time will receive what? Glorified bodies. The dead and the living. If it comes at the end of the tribulation, everybody either goes into the judgment or receives the glorified body. Are you with me? If they receive the glorified body and then enter into the thousand-year kingdom, in a glorified body, they are like unto the angels, unable to have children. Therefore, there can be no children born during the thousand-year kingdom, and therefore there can... I'm getting too far. Therefore, there can be... I get really excited here. There can be no one to rebel at the end. The only way there can be people to rebel at the end is that the people who enter into the kingdom have to be in physical bodies like unto yours and mine. And the only way that's possible is if the church is taken out of the way before the tribulation period. Okay, now, it could happen in the middle of the tribulation. I acknowledge that. That's not my point. My point is it cannot happen at the end of the tribulation. So, you know, I was telling you earlier, what are my favorite proofs? This is one of my favorites. Okay? This is one of my favorites because this one, I think, is as close to a silver bullet as you get to foreclosing the idea that the rapture of the church occurs at the end of Daniel's 70th week. If that were to happen, there would be nobody left in mortal bodies to populate the millennium. All right. Proof number nine. I know, I missed seven and eight. And I missed them because they're so long that I can't even cover number nine. I'm not going to try. I would tell you to come back next week for the next ones. 
But next week is Father's Day. And uh, I've got a really fine message for the ladies for Father's Day. <laughs> As I preach to the men on Mother's Day. And turnabout is only fair play. So we'll have to take a, a detour from the detour. And if you come back, we'll come back to this. Maybe the Lord will come first and we'll be rescued. Okay? But we're gonna, we'll pick it up with proof number seven in two weeks. Okay? But let me just say this to you. And... and I know this, 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 um, this stuff is stretching. I realize that. I realize that. Okay? But Christ doesn't want us to be ignorant of these things. If he didn't want us to know, he wouldn't write it down. Right? All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, right? Training in righteousness. Some of the stuff is harder to understand. You know, Peter says Paul's writings are hard to understand, or at least some of them. So this is, this is not easy stuff. I know that. But this is important. This is important because this is what will hold you firm in the gales of life. This is what gives you purpose. The coming kingdom of Christ. It's worth it all. But maybe you're here this morning and you have no place in that kingdom. No place at all. If Christ were to return, rapture his church, take his church out, you'd be still sitting here. How many of you still sitting here? I don't know. Christ alone knows that. But in a crowd this size, it's an absolute certainty. It's an absolute certainty. You'll still have a building. You don't have to worry about that. We're not going to put a hole in the ceiling when we go. Okay? You'll still have a building. You'll still have a Bible. Maybe you'll still have some of your friends. But you will enter into a day of darkness. A day when, as it unfolds, They cry out for the rocks to crush them, to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. When does he come? No man knows. But you should be ready. You should be ready. How do you become ready? You turn from your independence. You turn from your autonomy. The idea that you're your own boss. You turn from your sin and rebellion against God. And you turn to Christ. You cannot do this on your own. You have not the strength within you to make this change. It's not as simple as just sitting there and saying, as Brother Jeremy said earlier when he, was a, when he was a young child or young teen. He just said, oh, well, yeah, heaven's a better deal than hell. I'll take heaven. It's not that simple. You have not within you the power to make the decision. Yet God calls on you to make the decision. Throw yourself onto his mercy. Beseech him to save you. 
Plead with him. Cry out to him. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will save. And he will save. I'm going to close in prayer again, and Ron, I'm going to uh, deprive you of another opportunity. I should probably repent of this. I'm working on it. Pray for me. No, I'm not. Actually, I'm not, but anyway. <laughs> I, got, I got so much I want to tell you. So much. Please don't leave. Please don't leave until you know that God has saved you. Let me pray. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the eternal one, God of Moses, God of the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel, God of the prophet Zechariah, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We beseech you to pour forth your mercy upon us. We confess that we have nothing to offer you. What would a man offer in exchange for his own soul? The the fruit of his body for the sins of his soul? There's nothing we have. Nothing of value. All that we own and all that we are are defiled by our sin. By thought, word, and deed, we have rebelled against you and continue to. Please. Grant us not what we deserve, but grant us what you offer in Christ Jesus. Second person of the triune Godhead. Eternal God himself, who came to earth and took upon himself human flesh, that he might walk among us and that he might hang on that cross. That he might fully drink the cup of the wrath of God to the last drop. Our Father, count our trespasses against him. Consider our guilt his guilt. And consider his death and sacrifice ours. Exchange, as it were, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. Clothe us with his cloak of righteousness. Look upon us and see only him. As in the Old Testament, when you look down on the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tablets of the law, and you saw the guilt of your people against that law, Your anger was assuaged by the blood of the atonement, sprinkled there on the mercy seat that covered the ark. Jesus is our ark. He is our mercy seat. 
It is his blood shed that purchases our eternal redemption. Oh, Father, kindle within our hearts belief. Let us flee to Christ and him alone. Save us to the uttermost. We pray in the name of that one, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to talk further on these things you have heard, I want to talk with you. I'll be here down front. Come. Any question? Any question's a good one. I'm particularly interested in the state of your soul. These things are in question with you. You come. Let's talk. God bless you. You're dismissed.